around here, we are getting ourselves ready for Easter, which really is it's the biggest day of the year in all Christianity. Throughout the centuries, it's been that way. It's the day that we celebrate the most spectacular thing that this world has ever seen. The day a dead guy came back to life as a representation of what's going to happen in our lives one day. And uh, we're super pumped about that, right? Right. Easter is spectacular because really every single Sunday of the year we're celebrated in form. But this Sunday, we really around that culminating event, the resurrection of Jesus. We really believe the tomb is still empty and that Jesus, because he's alive, still changes people's lives. And we're not only celebrating that like in a theological level or on a worshiping community kind of level, we're celebrating that also because that empty tomb is still an invitation to anybody that will to get into a relationship with Jesus and let God be a part of their lives. And we really uh, just want to celebrate that around here. Yeah, so we're doing a little thing called Green Easter. It's the theme for us this year. So if you decide you want to come back next week, hopefully you will. You'll wear green. And the reason we landed on the idea of doing green Easter is because we're going to be kicking off a message series around getting the clutter out of your life, creating some breathing room. We're calling the message series Detox. Detox. And so it's green Easter, get yourself green, that kind of thing. And uh, it should be a a really good biblically-based but practical message series that should help you get maybe some traction in your life and the life of the people you love. Greg, a lot of what's going to be happening in this message series really just comes from, well, my experience over the last six months where um, the stuff of life has a constant way of just growing, growing, growing and beginning to crowd out other stuff that's important. And Jill and I, our family, our staff even, have had to say in a new way, we need to get rid of the clutter and focus on what's important. And so we want to help people do that. It's going to be great for you and your family, I believe, but it'll also be great for your neighbors, your friends, your relatives to come and make sure that the first things are first things in our life. Yes. So we are getting ourselves ready for that message series, but also just as a congregation, we decided it would be smart to take a couple weeks before Easter and get ourselves ready as a church community. So we're doing this message series called Unstoppable. And last week, like I said earlier, we talked about the mission of our church, which really is just the mission of churches that have existed since the very first church in the early book, early chapters of the New Testament. Greg, what's, what's funny about this is that churches don't really have an option to decide what their mission is. Now, we can right. focus on a particular subset of that mission, but Jesus told us what the mission of the church is, and when we stop doing what Jesus told us to some degree, then we to that degree, we're not being the church. And so what we are doing these last week and this week, these weeks, is we're trying to just make sure we're clear about that and that the language we use to make sure we're on mission with Jesus' mission is crystal clear for all of us. Right. So last week we hit clarity. This week we're going to talk about teamwork and unity. But just as a kind of way to recapture what we talked about yesterday, the whole point and the vocabulary that we use to describe the way we do church, again, it's the same point as what the church in Acts did and the churches that followed. But we're really just trying to create an army of Jesus followers, and we talked last week about that being a healthy army of Jesus right. followers. We're trying to capture the imagination of unchurched people. We would like for our mission to be saving people from sin and from death and from hell. The reality is we can't save anyone, and we explored that idea right. a little bit last week. I've tried. Yeah. It doesn't work. You've tried with me before, and it really <laughs> didn't remember. work very well. Yeah, I found um, you can't beat it into somebody. No, you definitely can't. <laughs> uh, but Jesus can. So what we try to do as a church is partner with what the work God is already doing in this world by using our time, our gifts, our talents, our skills, and coming alongside that mission as a group of people called the local church, Four Corners Church in this case, and accomplish that mission in this world. Just let our lives be instruments for his purpose. Well, this week we're going to talk about really the importance of not being divided 
by being a unified or a united team. And so I'm just going to share a little example with you that happened in my life yesterday that is really a great setup as a metaphor for what we're going to talk about today. So if you've been around for a while, you know that I have the smartest and the most athletic kids that have ever been created (laughs) in the world. Well, my sons play baseball. And yesterday, my youngest son, uh, Preston, who's nine years old, they kicked off their baseball season with uh, their very first live games, not scrimmage or anything like that, a little tournament. Well, they're a great team. Um, And what makes them a great team is that they practice a lot and they're always ready. But they pulled off a play yesterday, which is my favorite play in all of baseball. I I love it. But you don't get to see this play very often. Um, And so what happened is, uh, is, my son wasn't involved, by the way. I wish he was because it would be an even better story. But um, what happened was they have a, a guy was on third base on my son's team. And so he's in position to score, right? Right. The game's tied at this point, and so an extra score would be spectacular. Well, the guy getting up to bat, the little nine-year-old boy getting up to bat, he's getting the signs from the coach down the third baseline. They're doing, I don't know, something like this. I don't know what they do. They're a Catholic team, I tell. <laughs> yeah, they're Catholic. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know where that came from. They didn't do that, but it was something they were touching and licking and kissing. I don't know what they did. Way to get me off track. Sorry. <laughs> so the batter's getting the sign. Uh, from the coach down the third baseline. And so it turns out what happens is the first pitch comes down, right down the middle, and he takes a big swing like he's trying to knock the cover off the ball. It wasn't the plan, but because you don't know the signs, you weren't sure what the plan was. And he misses the ball intentionally. The next pitch comes down the middle. The guy on third base gets a big leadoff, right? It looks like he's getting ready to steal home base. This is the squeeze play for those of you that follow baseball a lot. Well, now he changes from going from a full-blown swing. He's going to lay down a bunt. The batter's going to lay down a bunt. Executes it perfectly. He holds his bat out. The ball barely bounces off. It goes like, I don't know, a foot or two away from the bat. Perfect Perfect bunt. Well, what's happening in the squeeze play is the guy who just laid down the bunt, obviously he's going to run to first base, hopefully be safe. Usually bunts are somewhat of an easy out because the catcher will run up, retrieve the ball, throw it down to the first baseman, and the guy's out. Well... The catcher can't do that because now you've got a guy trying to put some squeeze on him coming down the third base line trying to score. So the bunt happens. The catcher grabs the ball. He looks down third base line. He sees a player coming getting ready to score. He can't decide what he wants to do. That's the whole point That's of the, the squeeze, squeeze play. Right. Like, well, which out do I want to try to get, the guy coming at me or the guy running the first? Well, the catcher thinks about it too long. He almost throws the third base, changes his mind, throws down the first base. At that point, it's too late. The guy on first base is safe. The minute the ball comes out of his hand to go to first base, the guy running towards home comes, crosses the plate. We point go scored. up a point. My team, my son's team is the greatest team in baseball history. Um, <laughs> I tell that story to emphasize this point. None of that could have happened if they didn't work as a team. The squeeze play doesn't even exist without other members right. on the team, but everyone has to be working as one unified body towards the same goal, watching the same signs, getting the same commands from the leader, from the coach, and heading down the same path so that the play can be executed with greatness and so that the, the goals, the scoring in this case, can be accomplished. Greg, what's really great about that story is it really is a metaphor for the church. It's also a metaphor, by the way, if you, you know, maybe aren't fully into church right now, it's a metaphor for your family. If you're a manager, it's a metaphor for your workplace, that nothing great happens really unless there's unity. All the good things in life require more than just you. Everything, every vision that God's put in front of you, everything you want to do is bigger than just you. And so it requires working with people. And unity is that 
is that force at work, and especially in the church when the Holy Spirit's a part of that, it's that force at work that makes us stay focused on the mission of Jesus and not drift like, honestly, over the last couple thousand years so many churches have. Drift away from the mission and then start focusing only on us. By staying unified along the mission of Jesus, we get to leverage all of that. The cool thing about your story is these are nine-year-old kids. I mean, you expect to see that if you're watching professional baseball on TV. But young kids who maybe aren't fully developed can still, because of unity, pull off rather complex and dramatic plays. Churches can do the same thing. People who haven't been involved in church for forever or, or any of their adult life can do and be a part of significant movements that really move in the football metaphor, the ball down the field or help people cross the, the yeah. home plate. I love it when you do sports metaphors. Because about halfway through them, I always get stuck. I'm right. not a sports guy. And so I have to remember, what sport am I referring to As soon as you right drop now? football, I thought, where is he going with this? <laughs> Can we just talk about football? I don't know. Yeah. So today we just want to talk about that. We want to talk about us as a congregation, as a body of believers being unified around the mission that we talked about last week, helping lost people come to find Jesus in a nutshell, creating an environment where unchurched people love to attend. But we want to make sure we're on focus, we're focused on that, but also working together as a team so that division doesn't happen. I mean, you talked about how in most of the relationships in our life, unified relationships, relationships where there's good unity, they're, they're the best ones. I mean, they are the best friendships, the best marriages are right. the ones where there's great unity, where the husband and the wife are heading in the same general direction. They have the same basic goals in life around maybe careers and church life and volunteering and around raising kids. And a lot of times even their friend groups will have some yeah. overlap because there's so much unity around what they're trying to accomplish. Two different people well. with different goals and coming at it from different angles decide to put aside the uniqueness and rally around the common good for everybody. And in that, they find pleasure, meaning, and satisfaction. Yeah. It's the exact same thing. It's not that they lose their individual identity or even their goals, but they put their part second to the big goal that we're trying to work towards. Yeah, and that might be the key to what we're talking about today. For teams to work well, no individual on the team or playing, playing with the team can really have as their primary goal in life to execute their wishes first. It really has to be the goals of the team that have to be executed first. In this case, in a church case, we have to execute the mission of Jesus for us to be successful. But that really does require, to a certain extent, to use a kind of a Christian metaphor, being dead to ourselves. The, The more common way to say it is laying aside what we might prefer the most, the thing that might make us individually the most happy or bring us individually the most satisfaction, really for the ultimate good of whatever the mission is. Greg, Everybody that's married in this room has experienced it. Yeah. If you have, a, have had a best friend or part of an extended family, as most of us are, you've experienced it there as well, where you have to choose to put it aside. Now, the interesting thing in church is, is and to some degree, it has to work for you. I mean, you have to come and enjoy it and be growing. But if it just works for you and you never get on board with the mission, then it ceases to begin to work for you. I mean, the process. So it's this crazy tension that is at work. It has to be about you, but if it's only about you, you eventually aren't even going to get your own needs met. And I think think the key is really priorities. You do have to love the organization you're part of, in this case, the church that you're a part of. But your goals, your wishes, your own desires and happiness have to be subservient. Second on the list are really what God wants to do in this world. And again, that's why we want to be an unstoppable force in this greater Cincinnati area and why we're spending a couple weeks talking about it. I have, like I said, three kids. And one of the, the, the main things we argue about in my house, we argue about everything. But one of the mm-hmm. solutions to the argument that I offer all the time, it seems like, I must, I must give this speech to my kids four or five times a week, 
is that if they will set aside their personal preferences, I have three kids, seven, nine, 13. It's hard for them to set aside their personal preferences. But if they will do that and try to create a happier community with their brothers and their sisters or siblings, life for them will go better. They, in the end, will end up happier than they would have been had they gotten their way to begin with. Mom and dad won't come storming in, yelling at people, throwing out, you know, false punishments that we never really fall through with. (laughs) The tension that's in the house won't be there if they will put their personal satisfaction second, still try to get some satisfaction, but put it second to making sure the overall unity of the house is in order. Greg, it's such a clear thing. It's something we all agree. And you've seen this happen in other people. You know somebody that's had a marriage problem and your girlfriend's told you about it or your, your, your guy friend has told you about it. And you listen and you're all sensitive. And when you walk away, you're thinking, man, one of them is just being so selfish. And what's happening is it's destroying the whole. And it yeah. really is the key. And that's why, honestly, friends, the Bible calls every follower of Jesus to, Greg said it, die to self to some degree. And not in the sense that you lose your identity and we're all just no. part you know, of, right. of an automated machine. Not that at all. But you bring your will subservient. And without that, unity doesn't happen. And it is the unity factor that was so prevalent in the early church. Think about this. It was a small group of people who did wildly huge big things. How did a small group of people change the world? They operated in unity and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And God used their willingness to be second to his agenda in their lives to change them and to change the world. Let me read you a passage in Acts chapter 2 that everybody goes back to whenever we think about how do we keep the church on mission. And I want you to hear the language of unity that's just explicit in this passage. Acts chapter 2, verse 44 through 47. Here's what it says. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to everyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now here was the the result or the fruit of that. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So the mission is more and more people to come to know Jesus. But God accomplishes that through a group of people, not anyone, it's always bigger than one, through a group of people who come together and say, God's will is first, his mission is first, I still need to get what I need, I still need to grow, be helped, be healed, but God's mission is first, and we're going to come together, and when that happens, a small group of people can change the world. Yeah. You know, what God desires as much as anything is that for the large C church, that's everyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus, to be unified around that mission of, we call it the Great Commission, helping other people fall in love with, with Jesus. He, God wants that. He desires that for us. There is a force at work in the world, though, that would love for that not to happen. Yeah. Whereas God desires unity, the reality is our enemy de- desires for us to be divided. Right. Division in what we're trying to accomplish. If unity is the key, one of the three or four keys that makes it happen in church, then the enemy is going to come straight against that and yeah. say, if I can destroy unity, then it ain't going to happen. And so, so here, here's some proof just telling you how important unity is. You know this in your family. You know it on your sports team. You know it on your job. But it's true in the church. When the Apostle Paul was trying to help people understand the implications of what Jesus' life on this earth meant, he wrote these letters to these churches. He had two primary themes. Now, the first one's going to make sense to you, maybe intuitively. He, would, he wrote people and he said, you need to get your doctrine, your beliefs about Jesus right. Jesus is unique. He's the Son of God. He's the way to heaven. There's something special happening in him. So there's a lot of language in all of Paul's writings, two-thirds of the New Testament, about who Jesus is. But his second most recurring theme is unity. 
His idea was this, that if you get who Jesus is right in your own mind, and if you keep it in first place in the church, and then secondarily, if you get unity, if you stay focused around the mission of Jesus, those two things together are unstoppable. Yeah. And that's why the enemy comes against both of those things so clear. He tries to convince us directly that maybe Jesus isn't as special as the Bible tells us he is, or in our own lives that somehow really it's all about us, kind of an indirect approach. But the other thing he does is he likes to get us so focused on our own agendas and help us keep that in front of ourselves that we can't come together. And if he's successful on either front, then the church isn't effective to bring God's message to this world. And it's It's woefully inadequate to just have a good heart. We have to work towards unity, and it's hard work. Yeah, where division is, unity can't be, right? There can't be great teamwork where there's division. The Bible says that the enemy, he set out to kill, steal, and destroy. They might as well add on the word divide because if he can divide people that are trying to coalesce in a certain direction towards the same overall goal— that overall goal is not likely to be accomplished. Divide a marriage, divide a friendship, divide a family, divide a church, and effectively he has killed, steal, stolen, and destroyed. Killed, stealed, and right. yeah, stolen, and destroyed. A short way to say that is he wants to stop what God wants to have happen. Right. And if he can create division, especially division in a church, big C church, the church, but also in a church, then man, he's going to be successful in at least stopping that gospel message that's trying to go out through what the church is trying to accomplish. Let me show you another passage um, where kind of the opposite happens. Here's what it says. All the believers were divided. They didn't have much of anything in common. Hoarding their possessions and goods, they kept as much as they could find for themselves. Every now and then, if it wasn't football season and they weren't too tired, they'd come to church for an hour and leave early to beat the traffic. They loved Jesus when it was convenient for them, yet they were, des- they were despised by people for their hypocrisy, and very few people got saved. That's in the book of Hezekiah, chapter 2, which, of course, isn't in your Bible. I completely made that up. Um, no, that's... They stone people for that. They, in the they Bible. do. That was right, that's bad to add to the word of God. Right. But but you know the Bible doesn't say it because that's not what happened in the early church. But that's exactly what the enemy wants to have happen. And it's not like we walk around and say I'm going to be a divider today. Right. What happens is if we don't keep the goal of I'm going to do what I can to make sure I'm unified to the mission of Jesus and partnering to others then it creeps in. Nobody ever sets out in a marriage and says, I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to make sure my needs are met first. That's not what happens. But if you don't make the goal, I'm going to prefer my wife. I'm going to listen with extra empathy. I'm going to make sure there's room. Then it tends to creep in. It's the default action. It's the default reality if we don't work hard to create unity. That's why it's so important to work towards the unity of the faith. And as we're gearing up for Easter and getting ready for what God wants to do through our church, whatever it is. We feel like we're kind of at a a really special moment in the life of our church. I mean, we've been in this building now for, since like the middle of December, I think December 9th might've been our first Sunday. But we feel like the last nine year or so history of our church has kind of been building up to where we're at now. And yet we know it's easy to get sidetracked in mission. It's easy to let division happen, and we know that if we get divided, we won't be as successful as what God wants us to be. I mean, the reality is, we talked about this last week. God's most valuable possession in this world is humanity. They're humans, people. And we feel like God wants to send us even more people than we currently have. And yet we know that if we're not fully on board with his plan and his mission, he loves people too much to send us people, additional people, if we're not fully ready to embrace them and help them along and create a healthy army with the people that he sends. Greg, what's amazing is if God's doing anything good in our church, and he is, 
it is directly connected to this unity principle. Right. Everything good happening in this church is bigger than any one person. And it's required uh, several people, many times dozens of people coming together to make it happen. If you look at the room around you that you're sitting in, those of you that have been a part of our church for a while, you know that, that God abundantly and widely opened the door for this to happen. But then he looked at us and said, now come together to make it happen. That's the same principle we're talking about. Well, you and I have been, and we've been involved in church for a long time. We're brothers, if you couldn't tell. And um, we've been in church since I was just a baby. I was yeah. about two when our parents started attending. And the reality is our, our life experience has shown that there are so many ways for churches to get divided. It's so easy for little things to happen that might seem small in your mind when it's first starting to occur or you're first starting to verbally process some dissatisfaction. It's so easy for those things to take root in a church and for churches to be divided around what God really wants to do. So Greg, what we did is we came up with five statements that just puts language around the things that we want to have unity in, because we believe that these ideas are the things, if we can remember them, and if we can put effort around them, and if we can you know, kind of build a hedge around them, then they'll keep us focused and unified towards the mission of Jesus. So, so here's the first one. We want to agree, and we're asking you to think about agreeing too. Many of you are already doing this, maybe you haven't thought about it in, these, in this language, but if you have, great. If you haven't, this is an opportunity for you to think about it. We want to work in agreement to do anything short of sin to reach people without Christ. Anything short of sin to reach people without Jesus. Yeah, it become a sticking point sometimes, I think, for local congregations as they try to implement whatever it is that their ministry looks like. A lot of times it's, it gets executed in a certain way, but it's really a personal preference. But we want to make sure that no matter how we execute ministry, no matter how we do songs or what format we decide to do preaching in or how we execute kids' ministry or what our youth group looks like, that we'll do anything we can in those ministries and through those ministries to make sure that we're asking people to consider a relationship with Jesus. Whether it meets our personal preference in terms of style or not, we'll do anything we can, and we want you to be in agreement with us about that because that really is core and central to everything we try to do as a church. Great. What's tough is, is that you know I have my favorite types of songs to sing, certain styles and, and words that are used in the songs. I have my favorite type of environments to sit in when I come to church. Right. Um, and everybody has their own unique personalities and their own preferences as well. And what we're doing with this comment and with this statement, we're saying basically, what if we, instead of just focusing on our preference, what if we put that as a secondary motivation yeah. and made coming together in unity around the cause of reaching people with Jesus, made that the first priority? What would that look like? What, what doors would that open? How would the unity factor there propel us even further to meet in the, meeting the cause of Christ? Uh, you and I have a, have a friend, um, this, this kind of gets to that whole anything short of sin thing, who, who we worked hard, invited him and his wife to come to church with us. And it was one of our best Sundays. We, we're doing Baptism Sunday. They're always, I think, the best Sundays we do. I, I love it too because they, they kind of you know, quantify for us a very public display, this is what the church is about. It's about people coming to faith in Christ. And then we celebrate that. And you guys, are, if you're long-termers around here, you know that when we do baptism, it's a party. We, we believe that the Bible says when people come to faith in Jesus, there's a party in heaven. And we want to kind of capture the tone of that here. Right. So this, this couple came. They experienced a baptism. I, don't, I think we baptized like 78 people. It was, that's a lie, but it was, it was a lot. That's it was right. seven to eight. Seven to eight. Right, oh, that's right. what it was. That's seven right. to eight people. Anyway, it was enough. It felt to like 78. Yeah, I mean, I, it was, for me, it was like just the party. And, I'm, and we're doing our thing, hooping and hollering. Somebody's crying over here, and people are hugging, and it's just, it's awesome. After service, I said to him, what did you think? He's like, I loved it. It was awesome to see all those people who made faith in Christ, you know, a public for them. I said, well, how'd your wife like it? He went, oh, well, Ben, she didn't think it was very reverent. 
Now, I understand. We, sure. I have a background, you have a background, and, and, and it was very different for us. He was used to more of it being a solemn thing. And so on one level, it's like no harm, no foul. Right. That's we just understand, sure. Yeah. And yet on another level, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Right. Because what's more reverent than celebrating? Now, again, people have their style, but she was unable, in this case, to put aside her preference and even celebrate what it meant. Now, whether or not we should do that might be a fair debate, but there was no celebrate. That's an example of where personal preference gets in the way of unity, because even if you don't like the form, any believer in Christ should be able to focus first on the life change that's happening. And when you can't, Unity gets divided, and of course, you don't come together. Right, and at Four Corners, we really are all about that. And it's not just something we're about. Like we talked about last week, we're just trying to replicate what Jesus felt was so critical and really what the early church was all about. And you talked about Paul earlier. There's a chapter in the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, and he's telling them what he's like, what he's willing to do to help lost people find Jesus, people who are far away from God, get closer to God. Here's what Paul says about himself. I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I become all things to all men so that by all possible means, I might save some. Greg, his whole heart was anything short of sin, unless the Bible's black on white on some things. But some things that we think it's black and white on is really just our preference. Yeah. You know, so like when we were growing up, you wouldn't have lights and stuff like this because it was too, too showy, if right. you will. Right. And yet our commitment is to do anything short of sinning. We, of course, don't want to cross the lines, but we also are willing to put, what that means is no sacred cows for us. Unless the Bible's black and white, we're not going to be black and white because we're going to leverage everything we can. I mean, imagine having fun in church. Sometimes people, you know, because of the background, they think if you laugh in church, somehow you're being, again, irreverent. And yet, when you look at Jesus' engagement with people, he had a range of emotional experiences with them. And we want to capture everything right. we can, hold it captive to the cause of Christ, and leverage it to reach as many people as possible. Right. The second thing we want to agree on is, as a staff, as a leadership team, as a congregation, if this is a thing that you want to join with us in, is to accomplish more with less. Greg, it's been the reality of this church that God has called us to big things and we've never ever had the skies open up where God just dumped a pot of gold in our laps or dumped all the people we need or gave us every idea and then every need was met and we just did it. No, no. What we've had to do is say our vision is bigger than the resources we have and yet we're not going to stop. We're going to leverage all we can. And so for instance, uh, when it just tangibly, when you look at this building as a representation of the church, we built this building price per square foot so far below what the going rate for price per square foot is because we were committed. It's going to happen and we're going to do whatever we have to do. And so many of you rallied to make that happen. Well, the same thing happens on kids teams, on hospitality teams, on keeping the the standard budget to keep the lights and the air conditioning on. We're going to do whatever we can do and we're not going to let our sense of the limited resources keep us from doing it. It's exactly what happens with my wife and I when I say to her and she says to me, no matter what, we're going to make it. We may not have every answer given to us as a gift, but we're going to take what we have and we're going to move towards the goal. And that's the same thing that happens in the local church. Something that seems to be true about the way God works, it's testified to all throughout the scriptures. And even in my life, it seems to be true as well. Um, And in the book of Matthew, it, it talks about this. Here's what it says in Matthew. It says, You've been, this is the end of a parable, and yep. this is kind of the explanation of why the things happened in the parable the way they happened. It says, 
you've been faithful with a few things, so now I'm going to put you in charge of many things. It seems like God works that way. It's almost like he tests you uh, in a certain sense of the word test before he's going to open up the windows of heaven to you, before he's going to fully bless you, before he's going to give you the resourcing. He wants to make sure you're not going to misuse it. And we feel like we're still in that phase as a church. Again, only nine years old. We want to make sure that Money's never going to be the limiter of what God wants to do in our congregation. And no matter how much money we have or how little money we have, we're always going to do the most we can so that the most lost people come into a relationship with Jesus. Yeah. Number three for us, things we're going to agree to. We're going to agree to accomplish more together than alone. We really do believe it's bigger than any one person. When we got together to think about this church, and, and I was contemplating, should we start this? The, the agreement I had with God, if you're allowed to do that, was I said to him, Lord, I want to do this. I'm terrified. It's bigger than me. And so as proof that you're in it, send me people that will do it with me. I can't do it alone. So honestly, the first person I chatted with was Greg. And I said to him, what do you think about me starting this church? And he said, I think it's a good idea. I said, well, before you say it's a good idea, I want you to know that if you think it's a good idea, I think God's calling you to do it with me. Would you pray about that? And he did. And he said, yes. And we went to our small group, incredible people that we were building this amazing fellowship with. And we said to them, hey, God is calling us to do this, and it means our group's going to have to break down. So let's get together a couple more times and just talk about that, and then we're going to transition away from this home church. And everybody in our small group said, we're going to do it with you. It was the proof that God was in it, that we couldn't do it alone, and that yeah. God was going to do more with us together than he would ever do with any one person. And that's, I mean, that's a true principle in life. It's always true that a group of people heading in the same direction together and pulling their time, their talents, their gifts, their skills, their money can do more than an individual can do on his own. I mean, that's why there are foundations. One we're going to talk about at the end of service about an outreach that we're doing. They, they collect things together so that that total impact of the collected resources can go yeah. further than what one person's heart or mission might be on their own. Yeah. The passage in the Bible that really illustrates that is Acts chapter four. Listen to how they pulled the resources to meet the needs. There was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sale and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone as they had need. People around here bring their money, they bring their time, they bring their skills and resources gained through the marketplace, through the life experience in their colleges and high schools, and they say, I don't know that I can meet it all, but I can bring my part. And then partnered with every other part, God creates this beautiful mosaic where things get done for his glory, for our benefit, and people come to know Jesus. It's a beautiful and picture. Was, that was God's master plan for the world. He Absolutely. sent Jesus and started this thing that now eventually became the church. But his plan was for multiple people to get together around this one mission, call themselves the church is how they ended up getting labeled. But together they could do much more than even one great man on his own telling his story about what he came to do and his sacrifice for our That's sins. That's exactly right. 50% of the churches in America are 75 people and below and 50% are 76 people and above. And the reason for that sociologically is, is one person can manage about 75 people giving marginal effort towards some mission. In this church, we have known from the beginning that even at the leadership level, it would require many people coming together if we were going to do all that God called us to. The fourth one, the fourth thing we want to agree to is to let God set our size while we keep a mega vision. Yeah, um, we've always believed that God wanted to do more. I don't know, people ask me, well, Ben, what's next for the church? How big do you want to get? What's your goal? I don't have a goal. Um, I've always tried to let God set our size, but I know this. 
God will do what he wants to do over here, but he wants us to stay focused on the vision. And the vision is huge. It has implications for size, but the vision is even bigger than the number of people that come to this church. Here's how Jesus gave the mission. And I want you to hear the mega part of his mission. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, some of the last words Jesus spoke on this earth, he said, Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all all creation. We're not done until that happens. And I don't know that we'll do it all, but we'll do our part. And so at every phase, I have this challenge where I feel uneasy because the moment it starts to feel really good, I know that God's calling us to more. By the way, he's doing that in your marriage. He's doing that in your personal life. He's calling you to more. He's not done with you no matter how much you've done. The final one, the fifth one is we want to make sure that we work with God Mm. to make a difference. We don't want to do it in our own power, with our own great ideas, or even with our own resources. We want to make sure we're partnering with God and what's going on. It seems obvious. It does, but it's easy to miss because at the end of the day, let me just make a few things clear. It's the church, it belongs to Jesus. It's Jesus' church. And, And the people, all of us, we belong to Jesus. You're not ours. You're not mine. You don't belong. You belong to Him. And and the lost people that He's going to send us, they don't belong to four corners. They are gods. And so it's all about Him. And when we keep our mind and focus on the fact that this is His church, it's His message, it's His people, it keeps us focused and it allows the Holy Spirit to walk in freedom among us. And our unity and the power of the Holy Spirit together comes together and God does remarkable things more than you and I could ever ask or imagine. He'll do it in your marriage. He'll do it in your workplace. When we walk in unity and leave room for Him to be the leader, Real quickly, if it's not happening in your marriage, you're either off on unity or you're off on the place of Jesus in your marriage. If it's not happening in your family, you're off on unity or Jesus doesn't have the right place in your family. Those are the two forces that have to be in place for the big mission that Jesus has for this world. Here's how Paul wrote it in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Immeasurably more than you could ask or even imagine. Yeah. What would it look like if the people that live in your neighborhood, your extended family, friends, your lost loved ones stopped and asked this question? I wonder what a difference it would make to have God in my life. What could it look like if we could capture their imagination to give them an environment and an experience where they would ask this question? I wonder what difference God could make in my life, in my marriage, in my finances, in my spiritual well-being. I wonder what difference it would make if I took a step towards God today. We want to capture their imagination for what life with God lived in Christ, in unity with brothers and sisters, empowered by the Holy Spirit, could look like in their lives. I want to do that with you. I want God to keep that fresh in me. We want to do it with our staff. We want to do it with our neighbors around here. And just a word of thanks. So many of you have worked hard to make that a reality. We're not a perfect church, but we're a pretty good one. And we wouldn't be where we are if many of you, dozens, in fact, a couple of hundred of you, wouldn't have come together and said, to some degree, I'm going to make my agenda second, and I'm going to make the agenda of Jesus first. And I'm not just going to hope it happens. I'm going to work and press and pray and give and serve to make it happen. We couldn't do it. And I just want to let you know, we're grateful. And we don't believe God is done. 
And so right now I want to ask you a simple question. Will you partner with us to bring an army of Jesus followers together to capture the imagination of the unchurched? Many of you are doing it. Some of you aren't as tangibly doing it. And I want you to just think, would you be willing to partner with us to be an army of Jesus followers attempting to capture the imagination of the unchurched? What's your gut level, yes or no? While you're thinking about that, let's take a few steps together as a congregation right now. So you can do this by grabbing your connect card that was located inside of your offering plate, or plate, inside of your offering envelope. Yeah, inside your offering envelope right there. Um, And it looked like this. You filled out maybe the front of it already. Every week we do this, we take next steps because we don't want to just be motivated or learn something. We actually want to move forward with what God's doing in our life. So next step A, I want to give you an opportunity if you haven't already done so to make Jesus the leader and the forgiver of your life. The biblical language for that more directly is the Lord and Savior. It goes something like this. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. I've blown it. And I need you to cover my sin. That's the Savior part. I need you to save me from the effect and the consequences of my sin. But not only that, Lord, I know that you are in charge of the universe. You're the Lord of the universe. But I'd like to make it a little bit more personal. I'd like you to be the Lord of my life. I want to make it personal for me. So if you'd like to do that, we'd like you to check next step A. When the offering bucket comes by later, put this card in the offering bucket as a way of saying, this is my primary gift today to give my life to Christ. And then I'm going to pray at the end of the service or at the end of my time up here in just a moment. And you can use my words. You can, you can use your own to say, God, forgive me. I want you to lead my life. I'm ready to follow you. And in doing that, you begin a relationship with him. How about next step B? If you'd like to go public with your faith and let everybody know that you're following Jesus and have a celebrate, have a little party around here as we mimic what's happening in heaven as you do that, uh, check the box. Somebody on our team will be in touch with you. And how about next step C? Over the next couple weeks, beginning next week on Easter and the few weeks of following, we're going to see a bump in first and second time guests around here. And we, we need some help just to make it happen. And so here, here, here's how it's worded. I don't serve on a weekend team already, but I'm willing to serve one of the next two weekends to help make more guests feel welcome in this place. So it's not a long-term commitment. We're not going to put you in a room by yourself teaching a class. You'll be partnered with somebody just to help create the right tone and vibe around this place, a, a place of welcome and acceptance for whoever walks through that door. All right, if you want to do that, check the box. We'll be in touch with you this week. How about the next one? It's a very tangible thing you can do. Hey, I already give financially to Four Corners, but this week I'm going to automate my giving. And I'm going to tell you why that's important. It's easier for us to know how to make financial decisions and do more with less if we know what's coming in. So I'm not asking you to think about what you give. I'm just asking you mechanically to change from just writing a check or giving in the offering to going online at fourcornerschurch.com and setting up recurring giving or a one-time gift and make it automated. We get to see what's coming in. We can make more timely decisions about how to spend the resources around here to impact as many people. It would be a big help to us and make very little change in your monthly cash flow. All right, and how about next step E? I think everybody can do this. I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna invite, and I'm gonna smile. That's the three things I'm asking you to do as we prepare for Green Easter. Pray, invite, and smile in preparation for what God is going to do at Green Easter here at Four Corners. Let's pray about these things right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of the church. God, it's not perfect, but it's pretty dramatic how it's still changing people's lives. You're still using it to change people's lives. Now, Lord, we know we're not a perfect church. We've got a long way to go. 
but you're growing us, you're shaping us, you're molding us, you're still calling us. And Lord, you're using us to bring the message of grace and salvation to people. Right now, there are a few folks in this room who are deciding whether or not you're going to be their Lord and Savior. We pray for them right now. We ask God that they would be able to find a way to humbly say to themselves and to you that they're a sinner and they need your grace to cover them. And Lord, they're inviting you to lead their lives right now. Thank you for that. Lord, I want to pray also for all the folks around this area that you're already preparing their hearts to be invited. You're already preparing their hearts to think about eternity next week on Easter. They don't even know it yet, many of them. God, we just want to be the kind of church that they can walk in and hear a simple and clear message about the profound claims of Jesus and how he can save them and change them and how we will love them and help grow them and partner with them. Lord, we commit all of these things, all the great things you're doing to you in the name of Jesus, the strong son of God. Amen and amen.